Let's turn in our Bibles to James chapter 1 this morning. James chapter 1. We began a series in the letter of James last week, a series that we're entitling Faith is Not Alone. comes from the thought of one of the reformers that we are justified, that is made right or acceptable in the eyes of the Lord by faith alone. But that the faith that justifies is never alone. That the Lord, when he saves a man or a woman, he also changes them. No change, no salvation. That's the consistent testimony of the New Testament. And as we turn to James chapter 1, we've been considering this idea of a tried or a tested faith. And so we turn to verses 1 through 12. If you're using one of the church Bibles, uh, page number 1011, James chapter 1, verses 1 to 12. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also... Will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits? Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let's bow and pray. Father, thank you that you have given us your word, a word that renews our minds, and transforms our lives, a word that gives us your perspective on reality, which is the right perspective. And we pray this morning that as we turn to this passage again, a challenging text on the issue of trials, we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to be our teacher, so that we would not simply walk away having heard and understood, but that we would walk away having been transformed. We have not gathered to be entertained or to hear the voice of a mere man. We've come to meet with you. And so we pray that you would do the work that only you can do. We pray that you would change us as you send your word to us. And we ask all that we have in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I can remember as if it were yesterday, being a, a new Christian, having been converted out of a life of atheism 
and unbelief and rampant sin. I can remember in those few first precious months having that desire, almost unquenchable desire, to tell everybody who would listen that I'd come to know Jesus. And I remember on one particular Monday morning after a a really special Sunday evening service at church, I went and told my supervisor at work, a lovely Baptist woman, that I had been saved. And what she said to me in response was striking, uh, at the time, strange, difficult to wrestle with. She looked at me square in the eyes and she said, welcome to the Christian life. This is going to be the most difficult thing that you've ever done. And I can remember going back home at that time, living with some unbelieving uh, young guys and, and telling them that she had said that. And one of my friends remarked to me, he said, why would you ever feel that way about your religion? See, what was lying behind my confusion and my friends just outright uh, perplexity at what Lisa had said was this idea that Christianity equals ease. There's a sort of uh, thinking that says, now that my sins have been forgiven, now that I've received Christ." Life is going to be easy. But that doesn't really square with reality, does it? We said last week that sometimes it seems as though following Jesus makes life more difficult, not less difficult. On top of all the trials and afflictions of life, we now war against the devil, the flesh. Sin is crouching at the door and we must master it. Life is more difficult when we follow Jesus. And so what we need more than anything else is as we think about afflictions and hardship to have the way that we we conceive of them completely transformed by God's word. And that's what James does here in the early verses of James chapter 1. He's been telling us as we said last week that trials test and strengthen our faith so that We persevere straight through to the end. There's a purpose behind all of our suffering. And that purpose is that you and I would run through the tape. That we wouldn't give up prematurely. That's what James is on about in these early verses. Now I want you to see, as we look at the passage again, just as a reminder that everything that we read here in these first 12 verses revolves around the issue of trials. Look with me at verses 2 through 4. And there we see these catchwords or these key phrases, trials, testing, steadfastness. Then again, verse 12, steadfast, trial, test. This is the framework in which everything that James teaches exists within. And we said that what he's trying to do is trying to tell us how our trials are to be met as we walk with Jesus. He tells us, number one, trials call for joy. He then tells us trials call for wisdom, boasting, and steadfastness. If trials are meant to strengthen us so that we run through the tape, this is the way that we are to meet our trials. Now just by way of review, because we left quite a bit on the table last week, we saw in 2 through 4 that trials call for joy. James says, You know, verse 3, that the testing of your faith, that's what the Lord's doing, he's testing our faith, produces 
steadfastness. So that as you and I walk through trouble and difficulty in the Christian life, the muscle of our faith is being strengthened and stretched so that we persevere. So James says, meet your trial with joy. They're not meaningless. They're not interruptions. They're not always a sign of God's displeasure. They're one of God's ordained means of grace to make us more like his son. James then tells us that trials call for wisdom, beginning in verse 5. At the end of verse 4, James paints this beautiful picture that at the end of trials, the purpose or the cause behind the trials is that we might be perfect and complete, and here's a phrase, lacking in nothing. But look down at verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, the goal of your affliction is that you would lack nothing, but currently, as we walk through trial, we lack wisdom. So James says, ask God. He will give it to his believing people. But understand that the wisdom that God gives is not about what you do, it's about who you are. That's James chapter 3, verse 17. The wisdom that comes from above is pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. This is the kind of Christ-like character that the Lord is pleased to give to his people as they ask while walking through trial. And now thirdly, he tells us that trials call for boasting. This is where we left off last week. Verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. And let the rich brother boast in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. Boast. Now, at first blush, it's difficult to realize why James would make this sudden shift from wisdom on the one hand to wealth on the next. And it's clear, isn't it, that James is talking about wealth. He contrasts the lowly brother with the rich brother, the poor and the rich. And what James is doing here is he's drilling down his focus to a trial that no matter what your socioeconomic status is, you are currently walking through. It's true that not all of us will have terminal illness currently. It's true that not all of us will be persecuted for our faith currently. But what's true about every single person in this room is that you have a relationship one way or another to wealth. And so James addresses both the poor and the rich. And he says that your material possessions constitute the most steady and surefire trial of the Christian life. He's writing to a group of believers, verse 1 of chapter 1, who have been dispersed from their homes. Acts chapter eleven nineteen 19 talks about those who were dispersed or scattered because of a massive persecution. So you can imagine being displaced from your home creates some financial pressure. Some of the believers are getting along fine. Others are just scraping by. Either way, James says, boast. If you're poor, boast in your exaltation, he says. If you're rich, boast in your humiliation. But that presents a whole nother set of difficulties. Boast? I mean, if we're paying any attention to life, we know that we're told nearly everywhere not to boast. If you were raised rightly, your parents taught you not to boast. We find it utterly cringeworthy 
when we meet someone who's full of boasting. The coworker who only tells you about the praise that your boss gives him. The child on the playground who consistently one-ups her friends. The athlete, often on the other team, who over-celebrates a nice play. No names, please. But not only that, the, the Bible seems to consistently tell us not to boast. As a matter of fact, James himself says later on in his letter, as it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil, chapter 4, verse 16. So how do we make sense of the command to boast? This is vitally important. Because when we pull back, not simply from the context of James, but the context of the entire Bible, we find that there is a kind of boasting, one kind of boasting, that the Lord blesses. I found that evangelical Christians have a knack for boasting in all of the wrong things. Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 to 24, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Not in wisdom, not in might, not in riches, but in the knowledge of God. And so when James calls us here in this passage to boast, he's telling us to boast in our trials as they correlate to our knowledge of God and of ourselves. Boast. Boast in your poverty or your riches, knowing that both constitute a major trial for the Christian life. Poverty and riches? Many of us can see almost immediately how poverty would be a trial, but how about riches? I mean, those of us who grew up in the 90s will think, will be forgiven for thinking that when we were told, mo money, mo problems, that was just a bit of rhetorical flourish from the same people who told us it was all about the Benjamins. How is wealth a sign of trial? Well, here's the key. Material possessions mask spiritual realities. Material possessions mask spiritual realities. Look at this juxtaposition. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. We were considering as a staff recently the reversal in 1 Samuel 2, Hannah's song, where the proud are brought low and the humble are lifted up. James says, look through the mask and boast about what is spiritually true. The lowly brother, esteemed in the world as of little significance, little consequence, little value, easily ignored, easily disdained. James says, but look at this. Though low in the estimation of the world, in Christ you have been exalted to the highest place. Even now, seated in the heavenly places and being blessed with every spiritual blessing that is in Christ. There are no riches to be found on earth as significant and everlasting as the riches that are ours in Jesus. So James says, boast. Go on. Take pride in it. Rejoice. Brag about it. Yes, I am poor, but oh, I am rich. And to the rich man, esteemed as self-motivated, 
self-made, ambitious, industrious, entrepreneurial. James says, do not boast in your earning power. Boast in this, that your possessions are as nothing before the Lord. That to be a Christian person is to be the kind of person who has realized that I am a spiritual beggar before the holiness and justice of God. In the words of Top Lady's hymn, nothing in my hands I bring. I'm a, I'm a beggar. There is a way in which material possessions mask spiritual realities. The poor pauper is really a prince, while the prince is merely a poor pauper. You know the story, don't you? Mark Twain, any of its contemporary equivalent. Maybe you've seen the Mickey Mouse version, I don't know. But there's a passage in Twain's book where he says, at midnight of the 19th of February, Tom Canty, the, the pauper, was sinking to sleep in his rich bed in the palace, guarded by his loyal vassals and surrounded by the pomps of royalty, a happy boy, for tomorrow is the day appointed for his solemn crowning as king of England. But he's, he's really a pauper. And at that same time, Edward, the true king, hungry and thirsty, soiled and draggled, worn with travel, and clothed in rags and shreds, was wedged in among a crowd of people, busy as ants, making the last preparation for the royal coronation. But he's the real king. So it is with the Christian. James says, poor brother, boasts. You have every spiritual treasure in Christ. You're following the one who, quote, had nowhere to lay his head, Luke 9, 58. You've trusted in the one who made himself nothing so that you could be blessed with everything. No poor, you are rich. And it's tempting for us, probably in our context, to identify with the poor brother. We just do some simple crunching of the numbers. It's estimated that in the United States to be among the top 1%, you have to have an adjusted gross income of 450000 Anybody make that kind of money? Raise your hand. No, don't. But when we think about things globally, to be in the top 1% globally, you merely have to make an income of $32,400 annually. Imagine we have a lot of A-listers in this room. And so we have to listen carefully and closely to what James says to the rich. Verse 10, the rich must boast in his humiliation. Yes, I have a nice house. Yes, I have two cars. Yes, I've put away some money in savings. Perhaps I have a 401k. I have a nice investment portfolio. But at the end of the day, before the judgment seat of Christ, I have nothing boast, not in your earning power, but your spiritual poverty. Why? Well, James goes on to say that just like the grass of the field or the flowers of the field, the hot sun comes up, verse 11, it rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. And right now at the beginning of the summer, you look around at, at your neighbor's lawns or maybe your own lawn, and you say, this looks nice. Until we keep up the 80 to 90 degree weather and at the end of the summer you come back and it's brown patches, parched, withered, ugly. 
here one day, dawning us. James says, that's like your life, you wealthy Christian, you rich brother. His message for us simply is that you will die. And with you, all of the enjoyment of your possessions. What then, on your deathbed, will your 401k, your second car, your larger house, your investment portfolio, what good will it do you? You will die, and so too will your enjoyment of your wealth. So boast, not in your earning power, but your spiritual poverty. What is your boast? Now it just occurs to me, as we think about this juxtaposition of rich and poor, that there are many in the sound of my voice, within the the earshot of my voice, who have been prevented from trusting Jesus ever in the first place, because of your relationship to your wealth. Your pursuit of possessions has absolutely obsessed you. And so the idea of pursuing Jesus and coming to him as a beggar is completely foreign to you. Well, let me say to you that the New Testament does not ever teach justification by poverty. Some of us saying as, as young children, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. I'll tell you what he was. He was a wee little wealthy man. And he came into the kingdom. But what it's going to take for you is to come humbly confessing your sin and your spiritual bankruptcy. To boast in your humiliation that I am as of nothing before the Lord so that he might lift you up. This is the trial of money. We all face it. We all need his help to not only persevere through it, but to boast in it. Fourthly and finally, in our passage, trials call for steadfastness. Verse 12, here's the frame, the bottom of our frame, and the last word on the trial of possessions. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast, under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Here we come full circle. James has told us in, chapter, in verses 2 through 4 that the purpose, one of the things that the Lord is doing in the midst of trials, is producing steadfastness. We need that. We want that. Our faith to be strong. But here he says... Not only do your trials produce steadfastness, your trials actually require steadfastness. So here's a new thought. The very thing that the Lord produces in your life through hardship and suffering and affliction is the very thing you need as you encounter more hardship and suffering and affliction. So cheer up, James says, it's worse than you thought. It's not as if you're only going to experience one hardship in the Christian life. No, the Christian life is one tumultuous ride of hardship and affliction after the next. He produces steadfastness so that our faith muscles are strong enough to endure future trials. They do not relent. They do not end. They do not get easier. They remain. And the point at which James pictures any of us actually standing the test is that day, that glorious day, when we receive the crown of life. 
So he says the test, the real trial of the Christian life is life itself. Let's not miss this. It cannot be said that we've stood the test of our faith until the day that we die. Until we receive what's promised to those who love the Lord Jesus, the crown of life. Now before we even understand the crown of life, I want you to notice that the crown of life is not earned by your steadfastness. Look at the passage, verse 12, vital. It's promised. This is given by promise of God. This is received by faith. The crown that is life, eternal life, in Christ, forgiveness of sin, entrance into the eternal kingdom, that is grace. But James says that you and I will not receive that gift until the day that we die. This culture, the athletes of the day competed not for trophies, but for crowns. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 9.25, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath or crown, but we an imperishable Currently in our country, we have two different competitions taking place where people are competing for a trophy. Some of them I'm more invested in than others. Game 7, 8.30, go Cavs. <laughs> but you know what the most beautiful thing is, and this, you're going to think I'm crazy, but I'm, I'm dead serious. You know what the most beautiful thing is about watching any team win a championship? It's seeing grown men weep. There's just something about that emotional eruption. Uncontrolled, unplanned, completely spontaneous. When a group of athletes gathers around a piece of hardware and weep. You can ask the question, why? And I I guess it would happen for a, a variety of reasons, but I think... At bottom, what's taking place is that 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 trophy represents suffering. It represents sacrifice. It represents training their bodies to exhaustion, giving up other pleasures in order to be the best at what they do. And there's a sense in which Holding that trophy is the vindication. It's the, 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 the end goal of all of the hardship. And you know what I've never experienced in all of my life watching sports is to see a reporter go up to an athlete who's holding the trophy and, and they ask, you know, all the hard work, is it worth it? And an athlete's saying, not at all. They say in distance running that when the going is tough, one of the things that you must do is visualize the end. James says, visualize, brothers and sisters, the end. That end goal of receiving the crown that is life. Do you really believe in that moment after having walked through the affliction and suffering and trials of this life after coming to realize what Manton the Puritan said, Christ who has left us the cross has also left us his crown. Do you think as Jesus crowns you that there will be any inkling in you 
to say it wasn't worth it. Don't be ridiculous. James says each and every trial, hardship, affliction in which you and I remain steadfast in the end, as it were, is simply another jewel in your crown. Received only by those who love the Lord Jesus, who've come by faith to the Lord Jesus to receive that which is promised. Make no mistake, in order to receive the crown, you must bear the cross. The Bible never shirks from this. This is the pattern of the gospel. It is death before life. It is suffering before glory. It is cross before crown. So take heart. Remain faithful, steadfast. God has promised he will give it. This is grace. So why then all these trials? They're meant to test and strengthen our faith so that we remain steadfast and we persevere straight through to the end. Who doesn't want that? So brothers and sisters, as you encounter trials, remember this. They call for joy. They call for wisdom. They call for boasting. And they call for steadfastness. I'd imagine that it's not going to be until that day that we understand what Paul was talking about when he calls his suffering light and momentary affliction doesn't feel that way does it but it is that way how do we know that because god said so and we take him at his word let's bow and pray together heavenly father we thank you that uh, we have been reminded that your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, gave everything in order that we might have everything. That he made himself nothing so that we could be made spiritually rich, blessed in the spiritual realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. But in order to receive that gift, we must come humbly, recognizing that we are spiritual beggars with nothing to offer, hands open, ready to receive, nothing to give. Lord, this is such a trial because the world tells us otherwise. If we're poor, we're insignificant. If we're rich, we're worthwhile. But you turn everything up, right side up. The world sees it upside down, but it's right side up. So help us to boast in spiritual reality and not what our eyes can see. And we pray that you would give us a steel spine in Christ as we walk through hardship. That you would continually be producing steadfastness, that character of Christ that endures through to the end. Help us to long for the day when we will be crowned by faith with this imperishable wreath, this crown of life. And then we'll simply cast it down at your feet and say, worthy is the Lamb. Lord, give us hearts that long for that day. We pray, come Lord Jesus. Help us to worship you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.